Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, welcome to the podcast. Today, Robert Lindsay, the one and only. What an actor. Now, obviously, he's been in all sorts of things. Uh, of course, lots of people remember him uh, from Citizen Smith. Uh, but he has been a star on stage, on screen, the full work. So I want to talk to him about his acting career. I want to talk to him about acting in the pandemic, about how acting's changed, about how working class people are kept out of it. Uh, I want to talk to him about politics, about becoming more left-wing with age. We've got loads to talk about. Uh, do support us on patreon.com forward slash owenjones84 to keep us going and the supporter function. Uh, we've got loads of stuff coming up. And uh, do leave us a review, or at least a five-star review, if you're feeling kind. And with that, here is Robert Lindsay. Great to see you, Robert, looking as cool as I think I would expect you to look, which is exceptionally cool. At my age, that call is all I'm trying to achieve. <laughs> You've nailed it. Absolutely nailed it. I'm going to start with a little poster. We've got this little poster, and we're going to flash it up right now. Let's have a look. Power to the people. Vote air chauffeurs. Mr. Morris Armour Campbell, who's now getting a lot of publicity off the back of this, is standing as an independent for South Cunningham constituency. And I have to say, Robert, he is ripping you off. He's ripping off. The famous Citizen Smith. I want, an, I want a reaction. We need a reaction to this well, immediately. First reaction is, I, I, well, I was speechless, actually. I, I, I thought, suddenly thought, why can't people be original and, and find their own little motif? And then I got very pissed off that they were using my picture, which um, apparently they can. I don't know why, but that's, um, you know... Um, I mean, my dad was very f funny about Citizen Smith. My dad was a big trade unionist and uh, he never found the series very funny, you know, because the character was such a joke. Um, so my dad really didn't like it. So I, he wouldn't approve of that. It might, you know, he'd be turning in his grave now, just the thought of it. What That's do you think of... Because I think you got a bit sick of Citizen Smith or people talking about it. So I don't know if I'm being annoying even by talking about it. But looking back, because it's the best part. I mean, it's like three decades ago, isn't it? What what's your what what do you think of Citizen Smith now looking back? What does it kind of reflect to you? Well, you know, the, the thing is, it was John Sullivan's very first job as a writer. He was a it was a, a scene shifter at the BBC. And because he had access to all the producers on the fourth floor of the light entertainment at the BBC, he managed to get a script through to a very famous guy called Dennis Main Wilson, uh, who was responsible for Steptoe and Son and Tony Hancock and all those great sort of comics and sitcoms of the 50s, 60s, 70s. And... Uh, got this commission. I mean, you know, it's incredible in that day and age that you, you could get a commission straight away. And therefore, it was the first thing he ever wrote. I love the idea. I, I thought it was a fantastic idea. I, and I know for a fact that John Lennon was a big fan. 
because he almost gave us permission for um, the song Revolution, uh. which we were pushing for. But then it was now owned by, I think, Michael Jackson, because the northern music went to Michael Jackson. Anyway, that's a long copyright story. Um, how do I think about it now? With great affection. Um, I just wish that the BBC had allowed it to flourish a little more and not contain John into a, a domestic sitcom. Because when the Tooting Popular Front, which he originated, which was such a great idea, when they went on manoeuvres and went, you know, and took the tank into Houses of Parliament, that to me was what the series was all about. But for some reason, the BBC decided to condense his writing into... Um, a domestic sitcom. And ironically, the last episode of Citizen Smith was called Only Fools and Horses, which he went on to write rather successfully. I didn't actually know that. You see? Yeah. Well, and of course, I more freedom with the second series to, to, you know, to develop it more. Um, no, I, you know, the boys and I are still very much in contact um, you know, my two mates, Speed and Tucker and Ken, you know, we still make contact. Uh, and there was a talk about trying to resurrect a senior citizen Smith. <laughs> what uh, do you think? Could it be reinvented for 2021? Be interesting, wouldn't it? Um, I mean, really, it's interesting having mentioned Only Fools and Horses, of course, because Del Boy is Wolfie. You know, and Ken, my sidekick, the Buddhist um, pacifist, is the brother, you know. So all the characters, the South London characters, John just took from one series into another. When they said... Oh, go on. Sorry, go on. Um, no, I ran out. I can't think of anything to say on Citizen Smith other than, um, you, you know, my boys... Uh, my, I've got two young boys of 21 and 18. Um and, and they love it. It is. I mean, it's an all-time classic. It is funny because I alternate sometimes whenever I say something, like, for example, earlier I posted about the Super League and, and, and we did a video about what does it say about capitalism? And people were like, okay, Citizen Smith. Didn't even know I was interviewing you. So I sometimes, people deviate between, obviously I'm a right-wing sellout, and being Citizen Smith. But that It often flashes up. As a reference point, I've noticed. What I was going to do, what I also did, I did a shout out to say that I was interviewing you. People are very excited. Sometimes when I do this, I get horror stories about people I'm interviewing. Fortunately, that doesn't apply to you. Um, so, for example, Robert is a genuinely lovely person. He was a customer of the wine shop that I used to work at, at Beaconsfield. Even my grumpy Tory boss liked him. Oh, my God. Yes. I remember him. <laughs> <laughs> was he grumpy? Um, it was when I showed my left-wing attitudes, yeah. When I asked, uh, I told him his wine was too expensive or, or um, where did you get this from? And, you know, yeah. Um, yes, no, he and I solved our differences. You know, sometimes I'm always fascinated by um, people's attitude when they think they know you. And, of course, for many, many years, I was only known as Wolfie Smith. Uh, so when I came in, I think people just assumed that I would be some, um, you know, left-wing reactionary, um, um, which I'm turning into as I get older, but that's another story.
Well, we'll come on to that. Um, just before I do ask you, just because I'm interested about the arts and so on, particularly the moment, but so these are people have gone on a real nostalgia trip. Does he remember playing Hamlet with the Royal Exchange and coming to Kirby on ta- on tour? I was in the audience and all the pupils in my Catholic girls' school fell in love with him. Someone else says, "I'm just fl- I'm just throwing flattery here, but this is what people genuinely said, so it's accurate." Is there any limit to his talent? Having seen him on stage and Thomas. Uh, Beckett and the dirty, rock, rotten scoundrels where he stole the show both times and on screen in various guises. Is he anything he finds difficult? I'd be interested in that. Uh, tell him I still got goosebumps remembering his Hamlet at the Royal Exchange in 1983. Does he remember the season at the Royal Exchange Theatre in Manchester in the late 70s? I went to every show. I mean, people, this is it's quite emotional for people. I mean, you do seem to me, you are someone who's very passionate about the stage. But and So if, if you've got any memories about the things people are talking about, over such a long period of your career, but what does what does the stage mean to you? And and maybe if you want to refer to things like the Hamlet, the Hamlet, and and the seasons that you you did in the late seventies in Manchester. Well, the Royal Exchange was very important to me because it um, it was up just during Citizen Smith, and Citizen Smith kind of took me by surprise. Uh, you know, it was not where I was going and it, the success of it was enormous. I mean, I think it was 20 million viewers every every Thursday night after Top of the Pops. And I couldn't go anywhere. I couldn't literally go anywhere. I was, I was, it was like a teeny bopper, you know. And um, I remember once being escorted from a supermarket by security guys because I was being mobbed. It, it, I, I can't really express, and it frightened the life out of me. And and I left after three series. I didn't want to do any more, which John Sullivan was terribly upset about because there's a there's a pattern with situation comedies, certainly of that time. You, the third one, going into the fourth series, then you hit the big time. But I pulled out, and I went to the Royal Exchange, and I did many many shows up there before I did Hamlet. But I do remember when I'd opened Hamlet in 1982, I was, leave, I was leaving my flat at the time in the, near the Arndale Centre and walking down towards the theatre. And there was a guy on a roof. It was a builder and he had a helmet on. And he shouted, power to the people! And I instinctively <laughs> just put my fist up as I, I thought, oh, God, I, you know. And he fell, he slipped off the roof, down the tiles, right? This is in the centre of Manchester. And he grabbed the guttering because he was falling. And the guttering snapped with his weight and he fell onto a shop awning. And he snapped the awning and he fell onto his feet and he walked across the road and asked me for my autograph. (laughs) I was going to say, I was like, did he die? No, he was, I mean, and the, this huge crowd gathered and watched this scene in front of, and I, I got to the theatre, you know, usually an hour before the show, and I said to Bram Murray, who was the director at the time, I said, Bram, I'm never going to lose Wolfie Smith. He said, Robert, come here, look out this window. He said, that queue is for tickets, returns for Hamlet this afternoon. He said, they're students and they're coming to see you. I said, no, they're coming to see Wolfie Smith. He said, it doesn't matter. He said, they're coming to see Hamlet. 
And he said, that's bring, and they're seeing Shakespeare for the first time. So I realized then the power of, of TV and, 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 I, and it's interesting because the people here who can recall very precisely when they saw you, maybe that is they watched you on television and then came to the theatre through that. I mean, I found that because a lot of actors, they're terrified of being typecast, aren't they? And was that your fear at the time? But actually it provided a launch pad and allowed audiences who wouldn't necessarily be that predisposed to go to the theatre to actually go and see it for the first time. Yeah, I mean, you cannot avoid typecasting, certainly with TV. You know, once you've done, done a TV show, um, and there's a terribly funny... <laughs> uh, oh, my God. The BBC used to have an annual um, gathering of um, on the light entertainment floor of all the shows. So you get all the porridge people and the dad's army people and the citizen smiths and... and uh, only fools and horses and you know all the guys and they'd have christmas parties and we were all quite drunk one night oh, i was leaving and i left with um nick lindhurst who was uh, rodney trotter in only fools and horses and we got to the gates leaving the bbc and the cab went past and the cab went pardon the people and i you know oh yeah yeah cheers mate and then nick it's waving for a cab and the guy went plonker <laughs> and i remember nick saying i wish i had your catchphrase <laughs> <laughs> i was gonna say it could be you did you did i think with the lottery in terms of catchphrases because there could be a lot worse uh, who do you look back who are you most what which sort of actors are you most you fondly most recall having worked with Goodness me, I've been in the business an awfully long time. Um, I mean, I think Julie Walters probably is the most um, varied of all the people I've ever worked with. And, and there's always something I've aspired to um, as well. And Julie is a great friend of Alan Bleasdale. That's mm -hmm. where, you know, I, my work with him has been very important. Uh, Julie's a remarkable person um you know she's very um very rooted in very she's she knows herself very well and to me that is very important for any actor is to know yourself because a lot of actors and actors i admired when i was younger were people like Laurence olivier and i was very disappointed when i met him because i didn't know who the hell he was he was he seems to be a bit of everything um but it's very, it's interesting now over the years since I, I left RADA in the 70s, how actors now are very rooted in themselves. Mm -hmm. It's very important to know yourself and to express yourself uh, as much as the character. I think that makes sense. Yes, it does. Makes very good sense. And one of the things I've spoken to, I've spoken to Stuart Lee about this, the esteemed comedian and about this certainly applies to comedy but it applies across the board which is that you know you see it with music as well as acting that, that obviously lots you know infinitely more people want to become a comedian or a famous actor or musician than are able to do so it's one of the most glamorous uh, occupations any young person would aspire to but the obstacles to becoming uh, an actor based on your background have got higher and higher haven't they over the years do you think that's true do you, do you look at 
the industry in terms of just how expensive it, you know, because if you can live off the people can live off the bank of mum and dad who are young, then they're far more able to be able to get into the industry. But if you don't have that financial security, then it's, it's become harder. Yeah, I mean, there's there's so many um, avenues I'd love to go down in this conversation. I, you know, I was at a secondary modern school. I failed my 11 plus. I went to a secondary modern school called Gladstone Boys in Ilkeston in Derbyshire, which I was very lucky because some of the teachers there were extraordinary. Um, and the, the school was a very rough boys school. Um, the school uniform was a leather jacket and a bike chain. Um you know, um, and to say you wanted to go into the theatre, I mean, it was dedicated to the mines, to the, the steel industries. If you were lucky and clever enough, you'd go to Rolls-Royce in Derby. And I remember talking to my careers master. I have to do my Elkison accent now because I have to remind myself of um, that moment when I he said to me, what do you want to do when you leave school? And I said, I, I've decided to become an actor, sir. And he said, oh, really? Right. He said, have you considered a career in hairdressing? <laughs> and I remember thinking that's exactly how pe people all feel about the theatre. So I've never felt confident about it. And in particularly over the last year with COVID and the lack of support by any government. And, and the, I mean, I've done a lot of work for the Royal Theatrical Fund, trying to raise money for for people in the industry and, and realizing what's happened to people, actors now, we are so lost. Um, the mental health issues are enormous, but right across society. But in the theater industry, I think the lack of the confidence that you need to, to be in this rather precarious profession has been so damaged because of any lack of support. And it's not just lack of support, it's the lack of, oh, does it really matter? It's only acting, it's only performing. So I've been very affected by what's happened to the theatre industry over the last year. Um, and I'm really scared. I've been asked to go back to do a musical in, um, in July. And to be honest, if I'm really, I'm really terrified. And I've never been frightened of, of performing ever. That's the one thing I've always been, I've always prided myself on is my, my strength, my courage, my fearlessness about performing and the fact of being different. But I'm really genuinely scared now because do people really care about it? The government certainly don't. Hmm. I mean, I remember looking back, it's, it's bizarre when you think about when the pandemic began. It's like another universe now. But I remember, uh, you know, talking to a lot of people, I'm close to it in the arts, in theatre. And um, the theatre's closed a few days before the official lockdown in this country. It was about a week before. And there was a sense at the time where people in theatre were saying, don't worry, everyone, we'll be back in three weeks. Because originally people forget the, the initial lockdown was only supposed to, it was time limited. And it was, there was a bit of delusion, to say the least, certainly promoted by the government and a lot of the media about the seriousness of the situation that we faced. Um, and obviously they were the first to close. And, you know, first to close, last to reopen, essentially. I mean, it, it, what what do you think? I mean, what impact? Because this is, you know, it's cultural vandalism, isn't it, to allow theatre, which is so much a pillar of the culture and society in which we live. What does it, what does it say about the fact that theatre has been so neglected and, and, you know, when it's so so much an integral part of our, of our life? 
I, mean, I don't know the facts, um, but the, you know the, the revenue—it's billions that the theatre gives to the um, taxman every year. Um, and of course, it—it's not just—it's the community aspect of theatre. It's the joint experience of people going and sharing a live event together that is, I, you know, well, I miss, and, I, and I'm sure many millions of people do, but unfortunately they don't seem to have the voice, unlike, you know, the Super League, which has been phenomenal. You know, I just wish we could raise voices like that about, you know, saving our theatres. I mean, you know, there are theatres that will go dark, that will go dark for a very long time because they are their revenue is gone. Um, the West End obviously will survive slowly. The show I'm supposed to be doing um, is a pretty huge investment for because it's a big musical with a huge cast. I don't see how they can perform with half an audience and, and, and actually make any money, you know, which to keep it going. I mean, with the Super League, you know, as you say, it's been phenomenal. You know, I, I've, I've, you know, there are pints of milk in this country which have lasted longer than the Super League. But <laughs> you know, you saw this massive outrage, and it actually worked. I mean, you know, for, for, for given what's happened in football over the last generation, the trend towards, uh, you know, ever, you know, money has has completely corrupted the sports in lots of ways. Finally, there was a pushback that was successful against that trend. I mean, with theatre, you can see in the US, you know, these vastly prohibitive ticket prices uh, and the West End moving in that direction. Do you think, you know, is it possible? I mean, obviously, football is the national sport and it's so much part, so integral to our popular culture. But do you think it's possible some sort of pushback could happen against that trend? Not least because... You know, theatre, it's this self-fulfilling prophecy, isn't it? People talk about theatre as being, well, it's only for privileged middle-class people and then a system which is promoted, which makes it prohibitively expensive, except for people who are from those backgrounds. I, I, I don't even know how to answer that. I, I, I'm just... Um, I mean, the thing is, the theatre isn't for middle-class white people. Um, I mean, you you... You only have to look at certain shows that that have a, a, a wide audience. I mean, we talked about Hamlet earlier. You know, when I did that as a, a young man, um, people were coming to Shakespeare for the first time, and as you've seen by your reaction that I get constantly, uh, people talking about the experience they had in that that nine hundred seat theatre. Um, you know, just before lockdown, I went to see Come From Away which is about the um, planes landing in this island before in Canada before the 9-11. It's a fantastic play. I mean, it, it was that was not a middle-class white audience, I can assure you. Um, so there are terrible generalisations about theatre. Um, and the National Theatre of Great Britain, you know, they, they have these fantastic ticket prices where you can buy, you know, for 10 quid, you can go and see, you know, some of the greatest productions ever. And the West End is trying really hard, um, but I think to get, you know, if, if people want the big musicals, you have to pay for them. That's the problem. But then look at the money they're spending on Sky TV. Look at the money they're spending, you know. So 
There you go. Um, a lot of the, you know, I mean, as I said before, so many younger people do aspire to being actors and they see Hollywood film actors and so on. And that's, that's what they want to be. But I mean, what do you think about, I mean, I know James Graham, he's a brilliant playwright, an award-winning playwright and uh, hasn't just written, of course, for, for the, for the stage, but also for television. I mean, he, he points out that a lot of our big movie actors themselves, they start on the stage, they start in theater. This is where, you know, this is, that's where people should be aspiring to in a sense, shouldn't they? I think the most interesting thing about film and TV, I've, I've always, and people I know in uh, tend to regard films and uh, TV as as a way of earning a living. Theatre is where you share your art, as it were, to sound very um, precocious, uh, pretentious. Um, uh, I've regarded my TV work purely to keep my family sorry that's not a joke uh, you know the ticking over um, and in, in with a, a decent living um and when i really express myself it's when i go to work in the theater that's when i work best when i feel at, more at home when i feel more comfortable um i have done films and tv gbh for example um which I feel inspired by, you know, but it, it depends on the writing and on the on the thing. I mean, films at the moment seem to be generally around Marvel and and you know, King Kong meets Godzilla. And I mean, I did um, uh, Maleficent last year, two years ago with Angelina Jolie. Nicole Kidman played my wife, Owen. Well, I would I would expect nothing else actually, Robert. Frankly, I think that is the obvious match. It's the only reason my two sons said I have to do it. <laughs> it would be criminal if you turned down that particular part, I have to say. Yeah. No, I mean, no. Did you tell, how was it, what was it like? I mean, look, I mean, you were a big name in your own right, Robert. Uh, but when you were actually acting, what was it like to act alongside, I mean, you know, Nicole Kidman is, I don't know. I mean, what was that like? I've got, I've got no more profound question than that. Do you know the one thing I love about this business and always loved about the business is, do you know what? Generally, I'm speaking, it, it, there are occasions when people do react like a big star, but I, I've only met that once, twice. Um, most people work together as a group of people on a project and, and work as, as evenly. And the lovely thing about, because I was very, very class conscious when I came out of school when I was 16 and then went to RADA. Um, the first person I ever met at RADA was a girl getting out of a, a Rolls Royce. I kid you not, she was Hilton's, one of Hilton's family. Um, so I've always had a kind of working class chip on my shoulder. But the one thing I've always found in this industry is it there's no class, there's no distinctive, it's all for one and one for all. There's a quote that I... That's a great quote. It was funny, actually. I was just talking on the, before I interviewed you. I had to pop to the vet, get some cat food for the two little two little pusses, one of whom is named Rickman, um, after the, uh, uh, obviously, dearly departed um, Alan Rickman. But he's, yeah. he's obviously Zoe Wanamaker, uh, who's performing in July somewhere, and I can't remember where. Uh, but you're, I mean, I mean uh, when... Do you, you know, you haven't been able to act, obviously, for a long time. Some people have. I interviewed Michael Sheen um, a few weeks ago, and he's been doing online stuff, but I, I suppose that's not the same, is it? 
Do you feel like you're you're kind of itching to return? I mean, you said you're scared. I mean, I'm I'm interested in what you do. You mean scared because you haven't done it for a while, and it's or do you mean scared because of the future of the industry? What what do you mean exactly? And what's it like to dedicate many, your life? Oh. Many reasons. I think one of the main reasons is I haven't looked after myself as well as I normally do when I'm working in the theatre, because I tend to use the theatre work. You know, you warm up, you you keep your body in check, you watch what you eat, you you sleep better because you're tired, and unless it's you know you, the, the mind the mind's ticking over too much because of what you're doing, which usually happens in rehearsals. But your body feels better because you are doing what you love. Hmm. And this last year has been very difficult in terms of drinking too much. I smoke still, which is worrying. My two boys hate it. I have to. I built a shed down the bottom of the garden, so which is my smoking shed. I get caught by my boys sometimes. I, you know, I feel I feel like a twelve-year-old. Um, you know, so I've not really looked after myself like I do when I'm working. So I'm worried about the physicality of going back because it's eight shows a week is tough. Believe me, it's very tough. So tell me about the Zoom plays. Well, I about 10 years ago, they asked me to become president of the Royal Theatrical Fund, which is a charity for the industry, um, which I gratefully accepted because it does such great work, not only for actors, but, but for stage crews and, and lighting technicians and, and box office staff and, and front of house staff. People are, and over this last year has been horrendous what has happened to the industry. And, and there are so many people crying out for help. So I approached a guy who runs a thing called the Lockdown Theatre. It's Paul Jackson is an old friend of mine and Rob Grant, who does Red Dwarf. Oh, and yeah. we combined forces with the Royal Theatrical Fund and we devised three plays, Private Lives, which we got for the copyright from the uh, Coward Estate. And I did that with Emma Thompson, Amelia Clark, and Sanjeev Bhaskar. And then we did Waiting for Godot with Michael Palin and Joanna Lumley, who narrated the whole thing for us. And then we did uh, Real Inspector Hound. And those three productions raised over 100,000 quid. Um, wow. Wow. Phoebe Waterbridge and, and uh, Olivia Coleman uh, kindly donated the flea bag fund to the Royal Theatrical Fund, which... Um, they've raised over half a million quid. Uh, and that money is literally been pouring out into the industry because you can imagine everyone, you know, all, free, all these freelancers in the industry who have not worked, literally not done anything. And they have families and mortgages and all the other responsibilities. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Which anyway. is incredible. It's absolutely phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. I mean, before I ask you, I was going to think about just politics and stuff. But before I do, what... I mean, that itself is a, is a brilliant, and that just shows people coming together during this terrible national emergency. Oh, the point was, though, and then actually the point I was trying to make was the response to those readings. I mean, there were literally readings. I was literally carrying a script of private lives. So was Emma. So, you know, but you were in our offices and in our studies and whatever. But the response from people saying, oh, my God, it was so good to hear a play again. It was so, what great words, what, you know, uh, uh, how I miss it. And, and I do, people do. And when the theatre's open, they will flock back, hopefully. They will. They will definitely flock back. What have you learned? If you're going to tell you, just look back at this whole very, very bizarre and unsettling and grim period of our lives and human history and all the rest of it, what do you think you've learned from it personally? What would you take from it? Well, what I, you know, my son said something interesting this morning. He, he's also terrified of going back to normal. He said, Dad, I hope we you know, just go back to normal. I hope things get better. And, uh, I just suddenly thought, actually, that's really interesting how people do feel. I think people are very nervous about the sudden surge of going back to normality. It, will it be normal? I doubt it. I don't think things will ever be normal. I think what's been happening, certainly in America, uh, with this dreadful man Trump, and 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 then the George Floyd, the George Floyd thing last night with the his release, and then the man's uh, imprisonment, uh, uh, and then the Super League thing. I think there is a shift, and then the conservation aspect of which I'm very concerned about. Um, watching um, the the lovely Swedish girl, Greta. Greta. Um, okay. Yeah, from Thunberg. Thunberg, Thunberg. Yeah. Um, there is a real shift with young people at the moment who seemingly caring about things that we, we seem to have dismissed. And I'm really very optimistic that the, the kids are going to change things for us. I, you know, I, I'm 36, so I can no longer really claim to be younger than where I once did, although... I, I still always look like Macaulay Culkin in Home Alone for eternity. I think it's some sort of syndrome I've developed. But anyway, but you just, you know, I do think it is younger people, particularly younger millennials and Generation Z, the Zoomers, as they're called, they're going to save us. What you mentioned earlier, you said you were becoming more left-wing with age. Tell me why. Explain what you mean by that. And what what what, what do you mean in practice? I, <clears throat> you know, I've always been intrigued by where I come from and, you know, I spent most of my teen years just trying to escape where I was from and being embarrassed where I was from because of I wanted a. In fact, my son said to me the other day, you know, Dad, it's really interesting because we recently sold our home, our very, very beautiful home where we'd lived for 25 years. Wow. 
which had all the trappings of middle class success with a tennis court and swimming pools and and you know uh, in the countryside and the money started to run out and i suddenly couldn't afford to do all the work that i could on this that these huge properties need so we've now moved into a standard four bedroomed house um which has been a bit of a shock but it started to remind me of what what is important about uh, you know that that i earned an awful lot of money when i was very young you know when i years after citizen smith all the way through when i lived in and worked in america i did lot, quite a lot of movies and was earning a lot of money and and suddenly for the first time in my life i decided to i could buy anything i mean i was listening to um, ed sheeran on the uh, uh, some chat show the other day and he was talking about the fact he could buy the 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 stormtroopers ship from star wars not the little one but the big one and he went and bought it and i'd do things like that but i think the lockdown and and having lost the house and having realized what is important is those people that live in this house and people that i can help as i get older and the people i can get help seem to be <clears throat> people with similar attitudes towards me and i've been thinking a lot about my father my dad was a great trade unionist and a great speaker and i'd go to his meetings as a young man and listen to my dad talking about the working man and how he i mean he people loved him and and i started to remind myself thinking back to where i used to be so i've started to reevaluate my life if you know what i mean so and consequently i've started to become more left wing again i mean do you, we we live in an atmosphere politically which is for those of us who are on the left it's not what i would call ideal um, no. as things stand i mean do you look you know you you were involved i mean as in the 80s you you marched with miners as far as i'm aware you and you come from that background you understood the kind of you know same as myself my dad was a senior shop steward um more left-wing than me, actually. He was a revolutionary Trotskyist. But um, in Militant, which uh, um, which I, I suppose partly GBH, I don't know if it was partly inspired, but anyway. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, do you, do you look at the way, you know, you've said that young people definitely give hope. And, I, I, you know, we see them with Black Lives Matter, the climate justice movement politically on the left in a way they they weren't in previous generations there's a stereotype of young people are left-wing then become more right-wing but in 1983 actually Thatcher won the youth vote so there's a lot of revisionism about history actually I mean do, do you look at society today with in terms of where Britain's going right-wing populist nativism very much on the march I mean do you just sometimes think this is you know where is other than young people this this is yeah scary. but I, I think Oh, and I think the last night that with the Super League being abolished, certainly by the British clubs, it's a curious thing to do during Brexit as well, which I find amazing because they were all Spanish and French, uh, 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 Spanish and German clubs. I thought, well, that's, what are these poor kids? We're going to need visas to go and see a match. You know, where by the time Brexit really sorts itself out, um, and with all the borders that are being. Anyway, that's another story. I don't. I'm just digressing now, but um, I, I think that with that Super League last night, the movement of 
the power of people there's a phrase i used to use a lot is so is really good now i mean people have a voice social media if it's if there's anything good about social media it's giving people a voice and hopefully they're the right voices there are some pretty bad voices on on social media as we all know but when things combine and and the voices become a chorus things happen you know we made the prime minister last night address the nation about football i mean boris johnson even toss about football you know um but suddenly now he he had to because the whole country just went this can't happen and and i get excited when when that you know whether you say that's left wing or not i don't know but it's it's voices together in harmony before we ask the final question, um, people brought it up, so I just have to ask. And also, I love the series Extras. So, um, I mean, just talk, because Extras was fascinating because people had to play them, kind of these bizarre parodies of themselves. Um, and you you had to insult a, oh, <laughs> a, a, a dying child. Yeah. yeah. Just tell me about that whole experience, including when you, when they, you read the script, presumably, and they told you, you have to insult. A dying child. Tell, no, no. Just whole... Ricky never told me that. That was never. That was never part of the 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 the, the offer. I did a chat show with Ricky, Michael Parkinson on Thames TV, talking to ITV at the time, <clears throat> with uh, Antonio Banderas, Antonio Banderas, Ricky Gervais, and myself, the three of us. And Michael Parkinson knew I did an act. He knew that I did a little segue of, I used to do Singing in the Rain, the whole musical in 30 seconds. And Michael Parkinson knew that. And he said, at some point, I'm gonna get you to do it. And I said, okay. But it was a really naff intro. It was, seemed so set up. And I did it and I thought, oh God, it was excruciating. And Rick, I remember Ricky sort of sitting there squirming the audience loved it. You know, it's 30 seconds of, you know, I'm sitting in the rain, all the singing and dancing and falling off the chair and all that sort of stuff. Anyway, it was about a, two months later, I got a call and I was down in Dorset with the kids. <clears throat> and I, it was Ricky. He got my phone number. I don't know how. And he said, uh, I want you to do the show, my show, your extras. And I want, I'd love you to do that thing you did. The singing in the rain. I said, oh, that, "That's so. I that's what it was." He didn't tell me I was going to do it in front of a dying kid with cancer, or I was going to tell him to fuck off. Which, which, which actually, I thought my dad was going to be actually into an early, earlier grave than he was. My dad never recovered from seeing that. He was so upset. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's actually—it's just very funny. Did you? Would you? Were you? You were tricked into doing it. Would you have done it if you'd known what you were—you were asked to do? <clears throat> yeah, I, in retrospect, I don't know. I mean, it's had such a huge reaction over the years. I mean, the the, the amount of press I get from the, and, and comments on social media via America and stuff, who still see. It. Um, yeah, I mean, Ricky gets away with it, doesn't he? You know, uh, yeah, I guess I would. Um, my, uh, I, I've got a lot of respect for Ricky now over the years. Um, I still think Stephen Merchant was the brains behind his initial work. 
Um, but I love Ricky's uh, bravery um, when he presents those awards. And I, what I really do love about Ricky is his conservation things with animals, his love of animals. Um, and um, he, he does say some incredible things. And he's, you know, he's a genuine talent. Uh, I have to say when we did it, <laughs> the crew were apoplectic because they hadn't read the script. They didn't know I was going to do it. I, the kids said, oh, I, I don't like musicals. I don't like musicals. Uh, I never heard of Alan Bleasdale. I said, oh, fuck off. <laughs> I remember this. It was like, you remember the film The Producers with Mel Brooks with the audience where they were just sitting there, you know, springtime for Hitler, just with open mouth. The entire crew were like, I can't believe he just did that. It worked really well. It was very, like, it was extremely funny. Extras is one of these series that I watch, I comfort watch it when I'm feeling a bit stressed. Yeah, or, yeah. I've watched it so many times. I've watched the episode you've been in. I don't know how many times I've watched it, but it's the sort of thing when I just need to escape from, from any, from politics or writing or whatever, or do a bit of exercise. I just flick on extras. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I have to say that him and the lovely girl whose name I can't remember, which is annoying me. Oh, can you remember? Go, go. Yes, go. I remember. Go, I'm not go Googling. On. You mean Ashley Jensen, of course, which was Jensen. on the end of our song. Uh, yeah, I mean, I remember doing the number if I, for the kid in the, in the hospital ward, but I remember their two reactions, Ricky and Ashley's reactions, were so funny. You know, really embarrassed that I was doing this number for this kid who they knew was dying. Oh, God. Not in real life, though. Let's probably make that clear. Yeah. Um, that would have been a lot worse. Um, just finally, then. I mean, finally, I'm interested just conservation in terms of where do you think the struggle, because that's something you're very passionate about, the struggle in terms of conservation. Where do you think it's at? But finally, as well, because I know a lot of aspiring actors, a lot of younger people watch and, and also listen to the podcast version of this. What would you say as well to aspiring, to people who who, you know, partly inspired by acting such as your own, what would you say to them? Right. There's two questions there. We Completely went different from, questions as well. We went from my environment to, to... Yeah, I just thought I just thought in my head I should mention the environment and then I panicked and added in the other one as well. Environment thing. The one thing that really angers me at the moment is a HS2, which is ploughing its way through the British countryside um, willy-nilly and just literally demolishing acres and acres of our precious land, which is getting smaller and smaller. Um, that really angers me. And what really angers me politically about that is who owns the bloody thing? Where is 80 billion? 80 billion it's now reached 102 billion, uh, which is money that could be well spent in the National Health Service. But, you know, that's, that's my real bet noir. Uh, I think that I'm also... Uh, great supporter of Greenpeace. I've got my own rock with my name on it at the bottom of the North Sea at the moment to stop deep sea trawling, which is also, I had a lot of uh, trolls giving me abuse. Um, but then again, the British government not really supporting the fishing industry either, uh, particularly as that particular place in the North Sea where my rock is placed is a protected area, which people are still deep trawling. So, pick up my rock and in answer to your last question what 
I, I advise people to get fit, to get well, and to be honest about why they're in the profession. Do it for the right reasons. Do it for the right reasons. Not not fame uh, hunting for the sake of it. No, no, no. That that would never work. Robert, it's been an absolute honour. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, do support us on patreon.com forward slash owenjones84. Help us decide who we talk to, what we talk about, the documentaries we do, uh, and also on the supporter function, uh, which you can see in the description. And leave us five stars and a review. It's just helps other people listen Uh, and with that thank you so much speak soon hey it's danny pellegrino from everything iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget check out quince they've got all the good stuff shirts and polos activewear and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands and the best part They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.